Hi, welcome to Lambert Park Church. Our vision is life with God for the world. Our mission is to invite everyone to follow Jesus with us through redemptive community, intentional discipleship, and everyday mission. We're so glad you're here. Stay tuned for the podcast coming right up. Good morning. If you don't know me, my name is Mark DeLeo. If you do know me, I've been called the Lion, Marky Mark, Marcus Welby, MD, Big Red, and even Fire Crotch in reference to my red hair. But enough about me, let's talk about marriage. This uh, past summer, I overheard a conversation here at church, and one person was complaining to another about how the church has overemphasized the importance of marriage. I couldn't disagree more. And over the next hour or two, I hope to show you why. (laughs) The context of this complaint was that the church has undervalued singleness, which actually I think is true, but that doesn't mean it's overvalued marriage. The Bible treats both as equally valid and equally valuable forms of life and service, and so should the church. The Gospel Coalition puts it this way, marriage is a good thing, but it is not the only good thing, and it is not a necessary thing. Some people will witness to the goodness and the glory of God through covenant marriage, and some people will witness to these things through their joyful embrace of celibacy and sufficiency. I like that, with one caveat. People need a community of some sort, all people even married people. Marriage does not take away the need for others. We all need each other, and much of what I'll say this morning applies to the church as well as to marriage. Biblically, these relationships are very closely tied together. Jesus himself taught that marriage is the paradigm for other relationships, including his own relationship as the bridegroom with his bride, the church. Reflecting on Jesus' statement, Nancy Piercy writes, if marriage is a symbol and sign of the union of God with his people, then in heaven we will not need the symbol because we will enjoy the reality. None of us will be married in heaven, and yet we all will be. But as I launch into a talk on marriage, I'm aware that this is a difficult topic for a variety of reasons. Marriage intersects with some of our deepest desires and regrets and unmet expectations and identity and spirituality and sense of worth. Marriage takes us to this complicated place of vulnerability, but based on our experiences, a different place for each of us. My time is limited this morning, so I want to point you to the authors I'm borrowing ideas from. Um, These are great resources. Uh, John Mark Comer's book, Loveology, Nancy Piercy, and Walter Wangren Jr. His book is a little bit older, but Scott and I both think it's one of the best books on marriage we've ever written, read. He's written. (laughs) And it's not on the slide, but Jonathan Grant came out with a book a few years ago called Divine Sex, which is also excellent and it's fun to read in public. (laughs) 
To try to understand God's heart and original vision for marriage, we need to go back to the Garden of Eden. Genesis 2.15. The Lord God placed the man in the Garden of Eden to tend and watch over it. So God makes man and immediately gives him a task. We'll come back to this. Uh, Verse 16. But the Lord God warned him, you may freely eat the fruit of every tree in the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you are sure to die. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. Stop. This is a staggering revelation. Everything about creation has been deemed good by its creator, even very good. There has been no sin, no fall, no trespass. This is the pure garden of Eden. And yet God recognizes that there is one thing that is not good, and it's for man to be alone. Now, Adam is with God, so he's not alone per se, but his existence as the only human is not what God had in mind. We're not told why. We don't know if God was concerned that man would binge watch too much TV and eat too many chips or forget to separate the whites from the darks. We don't know. My guess is that on his own, Adam would never learn to love or to populate the earth for that matter. God exists in community, in a loving community. And as we were made in his image, we also need to exist in community with each other. That's what we were made for. So the Lord God looks over all that he has made and he states it's not good for the man to be alone. Verse 18, I will make a helper who is just right for him. So the Lord God formed from the ground all the wild animals and all the birds of the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And the man chose a name for each one. He gave names to all the livestock, all the birds of the sky and all the wild animals. But still there was no helper just right for him. What does God, in all of his glorious wisdom, want for Adam? A helper. Not a horse. Not a dog. Not a lover. Not primarily. And though loving and sexuality are an important part of the relationship, a good marriage is not about maintaining romance forever. Some of our friends divorced about 15 years ago, and I asked the wife about it. And she said her husband was a great friend and really fun to be with, but he wasn't the great lover she was looking for. She had the wrong idea of what marriage is about. Sex is good, but it should not be made an idol. Jonathan Hay, in his book, The Happiness Hypothesis, reports that passionate love typically only lasts six months at the beginning of a romantic relationship. It can feel euphoric, but don't expect it to last, and don't make any big decisions in the midst of it. What's much better is companionate love, which grows over time like vines that tie couples together over the years. Over a lifetime, companionate love will far surpass what passionate love offers. 
The expectation that passionate love will last forever is an illusion. Fact, couples who consider each other best friends experience twice the life satisfaction as those who do not. What God, in his impeccable wisdom, wanted for us, what he knows best, is that man needed a helper. The Hebrew word etzer, translated helper or helpmate, is used 21 times in the Old Testament. Twice for Eve, three times for powerful nations that Israel called on for help, and the rest of the time for God. God is our helper, our rescuer, our powerful savior. Here are some examples from the Psalms. Psalm 70 verse five, but as for me, I am poor and needy, Please hurry to my aid, O God. You are my helper and my savior. O Lord, do not delay. Psalm 159, O Israel, trust the Lord. He is your helper and your shield. Psalm 121.1, I look up to the mountains. Does my help come from there? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. This word that describes God as our powerful helper is the same word used for Adam's wife, Eve. She is his helper. Now, can you imagine David the psalmist writing, but as for me, I am poor and needy. Please hurry to my aid, O wife. You are my helper and my savior. O wife, do not delay. O man, trust your wife. She is your helper and your shield. It might be a little cheeky for some of you, but I want you to get the gist of this word. God gives man a helper, not a lesser. Because Adam has been given this enormous task of tending and watching over the garden, and he can't do it alone. Marriage needs to be built around a calling that is larger than the relationship itself. The marriage is not an end, it is a beginning. Spouses are meant to help each other do something that matters, to make a home, to make a family, to create healthy culture, to spread God's shalom, to love their neighbors as themselves. And as each spouse brings their strengths and gifts to the relationship, their efforts are multiplied and the kingdom of heaven is revealed. So when God presents the woman to the man, Adam exclaims, at last, this one is bone from my bone and flesh from my flesh. She will be called woman because she was taken from man. This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. Now the man and his wife were both naked, but they felt no shame. The very first human relationship is marriage a man and a woman. You can hear Adam's response to his wife. He's excited. God has made Adam a powerful helper in an exquisite form. And together, male and female, they reflect the image of God. And God likes this so much that his first command to Adam and Eve, the very first thing he explicitly tells them to do is to be fruitful and multiply. 
This phrase is used repeatedly through the Pentateuch. God isn't just saying reproduce, he's saying proliferate. God designed sexuality and it was very good. Clark talked about this last week. Mankind was sexual before we were sinful. So here's a summary of where we're at. In response to the only problem that existed before sin, God created a powerful helpmate for Adam that they might work together as friends and partners to make the world a better place, and that they might be lovers and parents, increasing the number of God's image bearers in his world. This was what marriage was meant to be, a delightful, purposeful, meaningful experience, a treasured gift from God. And maybe it would have stayed that way if not for the serpent. Chapter 3, Genesis. The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. One day he asked the woman, Did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Of course we may eat from the fruit from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we're not allowed to eat. God said, you must not eat of it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. You won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. The woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious, and she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. Then she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it too. At that moment, their eyes were opened, and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. When the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden. So they hid from the Lord God among the trees. Then the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He replied, I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. Who told you that you were naked? The Lord God asked. Have you eaten from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat? The man replied, it was the woman, the woman you gave me, who gave me the fruit, and I ate it. Then the Lord God asked the woman, what have you done? The serpent, the serpent deceived me, she replied. That's why I ate it. So the Lord God started cursing. He curses the serpent. He makes childbearing painful, There's a power imbalance that's brought to marriage. He curses the ground. Work becomes painful toil. And God promises that man will return to dust, that man will die. Let me ask you a question. What does the serpent want? Everything in the garden is incredible except for one thing. And that is the loophole the devil exploits to get what he wants. He wants man to be alone. And he'll use all of his power and all of his lies to destroy relationships and isolate people. That's worth thinking about. When our thoughts are leading us to a place of leaving relationships, we'd better be asking ourselves what Satan is up to and which of his lies we might be believing. Here are a couple of his favorite lies. My partner isn't a good fit for me. We don't belong together. 
Or, my marriage isn't making me happy. I want to be free to pursue other things. These are lies that a lot of people are buying into right now. In fact, I deserve to be happy is the number one reason for divorce these days. So here are a couple of responses. <laughs> I like this. In regards to being a good match with your partner, Tim Keller, who's a pastor and author out of New York City, says, everyone is a bad match for you. <laughs> Some are a little less bad. And part of this tension is a really good thing. Through it, we become more like Jesus. So don't rate your spouse. That's the wrong person to evaluate. Rate yourself instead. Ask yourself how you can better love your spouse. After all, the only person you can change is yourself. Barely. (laughs) And in regards to lie number two, marriage is not meant to make you happy. It can, but that isn't the purpose, the aim, or the goal. The same could be said about parenting, right? If you've got kids, you know this. You fundamentally misunderstood either if you're doing it for your own happiness. So don't chase happiness. It's the wrong pursuit. Isn't it amazing that after all of God's tender care to create this relationship of excellence for Adam and Eve... It's one of the first things to fall apart. And I can understand this. I mean, who wants to consider others as better than yourself? Wouldn't you prefer to decide on your own what is good and evil? To judge others, everyone, and to criticize them by your own standards that you've set for all. Wouldn't you rather create and live by your own laws and rules to be independent and free? Of course that's enticing. And that's kind of how we understand who God is at this point in Scripture. He decides what's good and evil. He judges others by his own standards that he's set. He creates his own laws and rules. I wonder if that's what Eve wanted when the serpent told her, you will be like God. but I don't think she got what she was hoping for. And that's true for us in marriage. Marriage will bring pain and and suffering and loneliness, guaranteed. In marriage, we come face to face with our own woundedness, as well as that of our spouse. Instead of helping each other, we put our desires first. We take, we demand, we manipulate and command. We think that marriage exists to serve us. Each wants to feel known, but instead feels alone and unknown. The strengths that each person brings into the marriage become threats or weapons to use against the other. We want marriage, but it hurts us. It isn't the ideal we want. It isn't what we yearn for. The reality of the world is not the holy image in our minds. John Mark Comer has this insight. The worst me... It's the real me. Our loved ones get the worst of us. We act out badly because we're safe because of the commitment. And yet we doubt the commitment and fear that we're unlovable. Listen, if you're idealizing and romanticizing marriage, you do so to your own detriment. 
Marriage exposes us. It reveals that we are not who we wish we were. Yes, we remind each other that we're made in the image of God, beautiful, lovely, creative, and good, but we also remind each other that we are sinners, fallen, prone to wander, and prone to seek our own pleasure. Both are true. We need to face this honestly and with maturity, which is pretty much impossible, and which is also why we take vows when we get married. Walter Wangren Jr. writes, marriage begins with the vow, not with emotions, not with love, not with personal needs, desires, or sexuality, not with living together, not with an act of God. As creatures made in the image of God, our vows are an act of creation. We make something new that is marvelous and holy, unique in all of creation. A covenant is the strongest commitment you can make. God covenants with us, and through marriage, we covenant with each other. We don't covenant for as long as love lasts. Instead, we acknowledge that feelings are as unstable as water, while marriage is the establishment of stability itself in a relationship. Feelings come and go. Marriage is meant to endure in spite of them. Our vows take into account that we don't know the future. We are irrevocably committing totally to a person we don't know as well as we should, toward a future we know almost nothing about. We include bad things in our vows because we know that they're likely to happen, for better or worse, richer or poorer, in sickness and in health. We're saying, regardless of what may come, I'm committed to you. We covenant for life so that we don't have to keep evaluating our marriages. We're all in, which is how God is with us. Except that we're not all in, especially in the area of sexuality. The Bible makes explicit that marriage is the only relational container for expressing sexuality. And Christianity has never been in step with culture on sex, and that's meant for our own good. For example, couples who meet and quickly move into sexual relationships self-report that the quality of their relationship is diminished. The theory is that sexual involvement may lead to unhealthy emotional entanglements that make ending a bad relationship difficult. Another way to say this is sex binds and sex blinds. In a marriage, this is a good thing. You want sex to bind you together and to help you overlook things that may not be perfect with a relationship. That doesn't mean you don't work on them. It just means no marital relationship is perfect. However, in a dating relationship, this is terrible. Sex blinds you to the problems of the relationship while binding you to the person with whom you're having the problems. Another study shows that people who live together before getting married are 50% more likely to divorce. These, these are all correlated. 
So you would think that with all of this research and all of these statistics, we kind of be figuring out how marriage is a common good for, uh, for people, for couples, for culture, and yet the opposite is happening. Over the last 25 years, the number of marriages per year has been declining. That's the light blue line. While the number of common law relationships has increased. That's the bottom orange line. This is despite all of these studies that clearly show that marriage is far more beneficial for all of society, not just for the couple. Clark talked about, last, about this last week, about marriage being a common good. Here's an example. Marriage is reported to be 3.4 times more closely associated with happiness than cohabitation. There are many studies that have similar findings. Here's another. The longer a dating couple waits to have sex, the better their relationship is after marriage. In fact, couples who wait until marriage to have sex report 20% higher relationship satisfaction, 12% better communication patterns, 22% less consideration of divorce, and 15% better sexual quality than those who started having sex early in their dating. According to the uh, same people, the Institute for Family Studies, spouses who marry as virgins are the least likely group to get divorced, by far. None of this is surprising to me. Of course, people with greater self-control will have better marriages. Self-control is the foundation of sexual satisfaction, mutual respect, not pushing limits, and feeling safe and comfortable with each other. God gifts us with self-control because he wants what's best for us. And there's lots of scientific proof that marriage is good for people. Cardis, a Canadian Christian think tank, recently examined more than 50 published empirical studies on the correlation between marital status and health. Did you know that married people experience decreased stress, feel more fulfillment, enjoy a better sex life, and have happier children? Married people also recover more quickly from major and minor illnesses. For example, marriage triples an individual's likelihood of successful cardiac surgery. The health benefits for marriage are so high that an award-winning science journalist based in Toronto stated, if we could package it in a pill, marriage would qualify as a wonder drug. Marriage continues to be a gift from God, but here's a little caveat. All of these health studies um, regarding marriage are highly correlated with the quality of the relationship. The higher the marital quality, the greater the health outcomes. Which leads us to this question, okay, so how do we work at having better marriages, at higher quality marriages? Well, I think a big thing is we accept that marriage isn't about who you married, but about how you were married. Now, of course you wanna choose well. Don't get me wrong. In Apex, we've been discussing looking for a spouse, and we've been talking about it's probably a good idea to look for someone who's exhibiting the fruits of the Spirit. That would be like a good kind of checklist to have. But once you've taken your vows, honor them. Don't second guess your choice. Have fun with the person you've committed your life to. Laugh together. Enjoy the moments you share. Reflect on your good times. Cherish your memories. 
And I get that this takes work. When the relationship gets challenging, continue to spend intentional time together and work on things, work through things. Learn to enjoy date nights again. Go for counseling with professionals that equally value marriage. Quit rating your spouse and making lists of how they fail to love you. Instead, ask yourself how you can better love your spouse. Pay attention to your deepest desires, looking past your strongest desires. Face your pain with God's help and have difficult conversations, as many as are required. Stay one issue deep and only fight about one issue at a time. Maintain friendships with other Christians who encourage you and pray for you in your marriage. Value your personal integrity and stay committed to your spouse and to your marriage. If your marriage feels difficult, that's normal. And in all of these things, fight the devil and his lies as he plots to get you alone. And what is the goal of this work? Well, it's learning to love as God does, completely and unconditionally. This divine love requires self-sacrifice. It requires emptying ourselves of ourselves for the sake of our beloved. Paul expresses this in Philippians 2, 5 to 8, in which a God who has no equals makes himself less than, and in doing so, reveals that Adam and Eve's understanding of God was wrong. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. In marriage, God isn't asking anything of us that he hasn't already experienced himself. And here we finally get to the purpose of marriage. Marriage is not meant to make you happy. It's meant to make God known. I gave this away in my very first quote, talking about how marriage and also how celibacy can witness to the goodness and glory of God. So it matters who and how we are as married people. Do you see how this is fundamentally opposed to our culture, which says find yourself, be yourself, be true to yourself, and don't let anyone stand in the way? Find happiness however you can, even if it means leaving people and relationships behind. Make yourself known. I mean, that's why social media exists. That's the opposite of our marriages seeking to make God known. Our marriages are not meant to be relationships of romantic perfection. They are meant to be relationships of reconciliation again and again. They say something visually and representatively about Christ and the church. They are a signpost to the kingdom. Our marriages are meant to showcase God's grace, 
love, forgiveness, forbearance, and long-suffering as we lay down our lives for our spouses, just as Jesus did for the church. That's why sticking with your marriage is kingdom work. It's a long obedience in the same direction. It's the toughest ministry you can undertake. And God is with us through it all. We are not on our own here. We have a transformative relationship with a personal God who is our helper. He wants us to succeed in marriage, to live well, to experience the fullness of life as we become like Jesus, to find life as we lay ours down. Amen.